0: Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro.
1: You've got this pyramid, and pyramids are very stable because of the base. And the base and, and the athletic pyramid is endurance, right? Aerobic endurance. And you've got power and strength or power and speed, whatever whatever the other sides of that pyramid you want to be, but the pyramid that's Upside down, has too much quality and he's training out of endurance, is going to topple. So, that's, you, you, you kind of get that visual, especially for that young athlete.
2: So, you are talking about these riders that are training an hour a day but bleeding and from the eye sockets every, every, time. every day.
1: The lunch ride is the lunch race, Monday yeah. through Friday, and then they go out and get their ass kicked on Saturday. Yep. Duh, right? <laughs> but they can't figure it out.
2: Welcome back to Fast Talk, the Vela News Performance Podcast. This week, on top of your usual hosts, myself, fellow news coach Trevor Connor, and senior editor Kaylee Fretz, we are joined by two good friends, Dr. Andy Pruitt, a guru of bike fitting and cycling medicine, and a co-founder of the CU Sports Medicine Performance Center, as well as Rob Pickles, the head physiologist at Pearl Izumi. Also known as the illustrious Mr. Pickles.
3: (laughs) Perfect. Two serious experts with us this
2: morning. That's right. Having these two here is a little special for me because half of what I know about cycling came from countless hours, distracting them from their work and just getting them to talk shop. So for this roundtable podcast, Kayla and I just wanted to share an hour with you of basking in their knowledge. We'll cover everything from how to get tested and fit if you live in Iowa, fueling on the bike, what makes pros different, and why you should change your plan even if it's working for you. So let's tap into that brain power and make you fast. And I'll ask my
0: first question, what is new in the world of cycling science? I think before we sort of talk about current trends, right, because things are changing, we still need to remember that most training is still built off of a foundation that's well-known, well-researched, and well-practiced. And when we're moving from that as a platform, then we can try maybe some different training methodologies. Then we can try some different altitude camps or whatever else. But if we're just sprinkling out all of these different techniques, then our training is never truly going to be very good. Or even if our training is better, maybe we don't know why it was better. And so in the scientific mindset, we need to start from a platform that's worthwhile and build from there.
2: So what would you say that platform is?
0: You know, the platform at this point is to look at energy systems as important topics of themselves where a lot of people are gonna go out and they're gonna be a runner and they want their base pace to be seven minute mile, so they go out and train seven minute mile. Well, that's training speeds. It's not looking at the physiology of the underlying situation. And this is one area where maybe lab testing is worthwhile because we can look under the hood. We can see what's contributing to that performance and by looking in the lab and getting that breakdown, we can say, to improve your aerobic system, you ought to be training at these intensities, and to improve your anaerobic system, these intensities over here. If we're just basing that based on a performance or formulas of a performance, Well, then, hey, we might be pretty close. I have no doubt about it, but we might not be perfect. And there are a lot of things that go into performance. Maybe it's the person's carbohydrate availability that day was higher or lower, their performance goes up or down, or the temperature was different, or their ability to suffer that day. And so that's not necessarily the most solid evidence to base training off of, but it is worthwhile because it's indicative of what somebody can actually do when they're out in that race. See, a lot of people think that being in the lab and being outside in a time trial or a field test are mutually exclusive, and they're not. They tell us two different things. Some people say, well, why lose? Why spend more money for a lighter bike? You could just lose five pounds off your gut. Well, I say, why don't we do both? Use the five pounds and get the lighter bike. And it's the same thing. Field testing and lab testing, they're both useful information. The laboratory helps us understand the physiology, which is one component of performance. But it doesn't tell us the whole story. We can't determine everything within the lab. And if we could, racing would be a heck of a lot less interesting. That's right. Right. So, So we go out there on race day and we try to put that physiology along with the other things, maybe controlling our core temperature maybe pacing appropriate strategies that's what makes one competitor better than another and determines who is going to actually win the race
1: so rob what do you what do you do for that guy who lives in rural midwestern town with absolutely no access to a lab i mean we're here in boulder where there's right the the science and the experts are you know waist deep around town so uh, what do you, what, what do you suggest for that guy that uh, lives yeah. in a small town, Iowa?
0: You know, I think it's a great question and, and, and Andy's totally right in that hey, we're really we're, we're fortunate out here with the opportunities that we have. But the person in Iowa, they can get good quality assessments as well. It might be a little bit more difficult, and they might need to do it themselves, right. but through the collection of data for themselves, Then they can help work in this direction, maybe with the guidance of a coach, but not necessarily need to go to a facility uh, to have an expert like myself or somebody else actually collect the data for them. Now, you would go about that maybe by doing field tests of different distances and doing multiple trials, not just your best one off, because that could have been a fluke. But through that, we can begin to model performance And we can continue evolving that person's physiology with a good understanding through multiple field trials in in addition to lab testing, so to say. I I sure
1: don't want to throw Iowa under the bus, but uh, (laughs) uh, it could have been small town anywhere without access to a university or or lab test. But I I think that you can get quality information on your own, uh, but the Labrador is the gold standard, undoubtedly.
0: You know, and so, Andy, I suppose that's a question to ask back towards yourself where there aren't necessarily bike fit experts in every community in the country. How does somebody achieve an appropriate position without maybe somebody looking at them?
1: It's really hard to fit yourself. I mean, I, it, it really is. Um, but I would let comfort, comfort rule. Uh, I think it all begins with the saddle and you cannot buy a saddle by performing the thumb test. At the shop, right? So you can't the th- the, 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 the the saddle that has <laughs> found success for your for your friend may not be the saddle for you. The the right saddle in the wrong place is just as bad as the wrong saddle. So saddle comfort, you know, numbness and urological issues, sexual dysfunction are unacceptable. They do not have to be experienced in cycling today. So saddle choice, saddle comfort, that would that would drive it. That would be that would be rule number one you can get a lot of things right on your own, or at least close on your own. We talk about bike fit in three planes. X and Y are the side view. I think that is something that you and a buddy in a garage can probably accomplish relatively close. It's the Z plane, the front view, the the shoulder-elbow-hand alignment, the hip-knee-foot alignment, controlling excess foot movement that's unnecessary in cycling. All those things, that really does take expertise. And I would suggest the guy in small town, uh, Georgia, get in his car and drive to the expert with it. I I'll almost guarantee you there's going to be a good fit expert within 200 miles of anybody in this country today, unless you... And it's one of those this. things
3: that, you know, people have no problem dropping 2500 bucks for a set of race wheels. Totally. They, ought to be, they ought to be willing to spend 500 on a good fit and drive in there and even a hotel room if they have to get one.
1: Well... You know, Trevor asked me earlier today. You know, if you only have X number of dollars to spend, what would I spend it on? Well, it depends on where you're starting from, right? If you don't have anything, well, you got to buy a bike. <laughs> right. Um, but assuming you've got the basic stuff, you've got your shoes, your bike, and your your helmet, and and at least one pair of appropriate shorts. You know, the 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 next thing is is a fit. Yeah. I mean, to get it to get it right.
2: Yeah. Well, it it sets in some ways everything else that you can do. I have an athlete who I'm coaching right now who actually flew all the way out here to Colorado mm-hmm. to get a proper fit because all winter mm-hmm. we couldn't train. She'd be calling me up in the middle of her ride saying she's taking a train home because she couldn't ride her bike anymore. It hurt that much. And getting her a good fit, now she actually is pain-free on the bike. Now she can actually train. These things make huge difference.
0: They do. And I think that bike fit is something, as Andy said, With uh, maybe simple cases and uh, the simple aspects of fitting, it is something that you might be able to do in your own garage with a friend or a spouse, Um, but for true important cases in bike fit or maybe when things aren't so easy, being hands-on with an expert is important because again as Andy said in the beginning the evaluation of somebody's body is very important and that's how we need to define what somebody is going to look like on the bike is the pre-evaluation before they even get there mm. whereas on my side of things in the physiology world that's something where you know perhaps a remote coach is totally worthwhile and you can do the field test and get your data to somebody else for help with analysis You don't necessarily need somebody there watching you do your effort you can do that from afar and so there are two different realms in that regard um you know so the the small town person for the physiological side of things they're in a slightly better place for the biomechanical if they're a a tough case or they have special needs they need to get out of there and into a larger location or just somebody with a with a bike fitting expert
3: right you were talking about lab testing earlier I'm interested what exactly you get out of a, a sort of a full lab test, you know, going to see you, for example, versus what you can do on your own yeah. with a power meter and heart rate monitor. What what, what, what additional what additional information are you getting out of your testing?
0: Yeah, in my opinion, it's, the lab test allows us to look under the hood. It allows us to help explain why we achieved something. If you're doing a field test, we know that you achieved it, but it's kind of a black box. Was it anaerobic contribution being high? Was it aerobic contribution being high? What, what's the situation in you in a particular case? Being in the lab, we get to break that down. I get to look at lactate concentrations. I get to look at your fat oxidation, your carbohydrate oxidation. I get to look at your cycling economy and your efficiency such that we know what is it about your motor that's being successful and what is it about it that we need to tune up. Maybe you have you know, great spark plugs, but your spark plug wires aren't very strong. We can kind of determine the difference between those things and help you as an individual. People can go out and they can do a 20-minute test, right? That's a normal thing for people to determine their FTP. And, um, you know, for me, I can far exceed in 20 minutes what I can do for an hour because I'm a very anaerobic individual. And a 20-minute test is not a very good representation of what my FTP truly is. When we go in the lab, it's always like, man, my threshold is so much lower than it should be. And in all honesty, for me, for years, I'd get mad and I'd think, in some regard, that my own testing wasn't even very good. But I didn't have the knowledge at that point in time to truly understand what the heck was going on. And it's the different contributions of energy systems in me. I was a 400-meter hurdler growing up. I'm not a normal cycling physiology. I'm definitely not, say, like a triathlete type of physiology. And so by the lab testing and the appropriate reading of those results, which is really the hardest part, Anybody can prick a finger, but who can interpret it appropriately, that's where we can elucidate this additional information. I I, I encountered that with an athlete this winter
2: who, same thing, why would I want to do the lab test? Let's go out and do a 20-minute time trial, which he did, and he averaged 240 watts. But like you, great anaerobic system. So he was doing all his intervals all winter at 240 watts. Mm -hmm. turned out his FTP was 190. He was Doing these He's intervals before, 50 before. watts over, yeah. and after killing himself, wasn't seeing any improvement in his threshold because he, he was training the wrong systems. Yeah.
0: Mm. And so it forces it, and a bit of honesty almost. It does. you know. And with the testing, unfortunately, a lot of people see testing as, as a, a rating of how good of a cyclist they are. And oftentimes I hear, well, well, maybe I'll come in and test in a couple months after I've had time to train. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and its not, I don't see it like that. People ask, when, when's the best time to test? And I say tomorrow because that's when I can start helping you get better. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's the most important
1: part. A, a great analogy is, so field testing is like driving your car. You have a speedometer, a tachometer, and a gas gauge. You, take, you go to the lab, we actually open the hood and put the – electronic dynamometer on there and see if all eight cylinders are actually firing or not, right? so it's a that, that's the difference. I think you. Yes, we can all watch our speed, we can watch our heart rate and we know when we're out of fuel. but we can't open the hood and put the dynamometer on there and actually measure. Of all eight
0: cylinders I mean, and even speaking of being out of fuel, well, through energy. lab testing, we can help determine exactly the caloric intake that people ought to have. Yep. You know, when I was talking with a guy this morning and, and, you know, kind of making recommendations before I came here, and, and he said, but I never bonk, so my fueling must be good. Well, bonking is the end of the line. You bonk, <laughs> bonk. when you're done <laughs> for. You know, and performance was suboptimal prior to that. And through looking at, you know, somebody's cycling economy, the ratio of fat and carbohydrate that they're utilizing, determining what they have for stores inside of them, we can come up with a plan moving forward with optimal performance in mind. And optimal isn't necessarily eating as many calories as possible. That leads to GI distress. It's more food that you have to carry. That's not good. But it's also not eating as little calories as possible either. It's finding the appropriate balance for you one thing that we look at more in a research sense or more in uh, specific cases is somebody's actual glycogen status within their muscles and we'll do testing and i'll get this inkling that maybe they're a little bit glycogen depleted based on some stuff that i see in their testing we'll scan their muscles and they are low on glycogen well we know at high intensity exercise your body wants to be burning carbohydrate as fuel and if we're not full stores we're hamstringing that ability we don't necessarily get this information from being in the field.
1: The old, there are still guys listening today that I guarantee you say to themselves, I'm not going to take water with me because I'm only going to ride an hour. I'm only going to take one bottle with me if I'm going to ride two hours. So they are, they're intentionally underhydrated and under and They see that as part of training the system when in reality... Without now adequate are talking feeling. about
2: my secret techniques. Stop sharing these. <laughs> no.
1: But without being appropriately fueled and hydrated, you put yourself at a disadvantage during that training set, and, you're, and you're, you're resistant to improvement.
0: You do. And, you know, it's a fine balance because techniques like that have been used through the years. And in some regard, yes, we might be able to get a little bit more exercise adaptation out of training in a calorie-depleted state. But it's very difficult, and I'm reluctant to even say this now, it's very difficult because it often leads to bad things. If we do the exact same workout once in a well-fed state and once in a carbohydrate-depleted state, our cortisol response goes up. Our stress hormones increase after we do the underfed workout. Now, oftentimes, people, unfortunately, will take one idea... That has been told works, and they'll apply it to every workout that they do. Okay. And when we give people sort of this tool, they often overapply it. And they say, well, every morning I ride an hour on the trainer without eating before I go to work, and then I do my real workout later in the day. Well, that's really stressful on your system. And if you do that day in and day out, you might be fine for a week or two weeks, maybe even a month. But at some point, stuff like that catches up to you. And so, yeah, for the most part, the best recommendation is to be well fed and fueled all the time (laughs) because you're going to get 95% of the adaptation, but with a lot less risk for something like overtraining. You overtrain your performance is terrible at that point. Nothing was worth it. So
3: This is something we've heard about quite frequently, actually, from the pro ranks, which I think is somewhat surprising. That, and actually, I think, uh, I hate to single out Jonathan Votters, but I also sort of enjoy sing- singling out Jonathan Voters. Uh He's talked about a number of, of his riders over the last couple of years using that, yeah. you know, going out on really long rides with minimal food. Mm-hmm. You're saying that that's... At least, if not carefully controlled,
0: probably not a, generally a good idea. Carefully controlled, I think, is the operative situation. Yeah. If you're doing that once a week, sure, you're probably okay. If you're doing it less than that, not a big deal. If you're doing it more than once a week, you're opening yourself up for an increased risk of an adverse event.
1: It needs to be on the right day of the week too. You sure. can't be in a recovery yeah. state, Correct. right, from a big effort, and think, okay, now now I'm going to spend 300 calories without repaying the bank mm-hmm. and for weight loss, right? Yeah. So I think about Jonathan's guys. Right. A lot of them are attempting to be climbers, yeah. and weight control is crucial for them. Mm-hmm. The old European model, I mean, my son raced in Belgium for three years, and his guy, his, his coach and manager would send them out every morning for an hour ride on an empty stomach almost every day, yeah.
2: right? <laughs> so it was crazy. So but you're actually seeing there's, there's been a whole bunch of research put up by Dr. John Hawley. He looked into this and, and, yeah, what was interesting, you saw a, a higher physiological response. You saw a higher upregulation of the PGC1 alpha. But at the end of the day, there was no imp- performance improvement whatsoever right. yeah. from doing this.
0: I mean, you know, I want to touch on one point from Kaylee really quick. When he brought up Jonathan and, and maybe just pro riders in general, uh, we have to keep in mind that. The physiology of pro riders is a lot different than it is of the average person. Good point. Yep. And when I'm looking at somebody in the lab and we're looking at carbohydrate and fat burning rates, the pros are burning up to uh, you know a few hundred calories worth of fat. So that means they're using carbohydrate at less rate. And we all have limited carbohydrate stores. So they're physiologically set up to ride for a few hours before they run out of their carbohydrate, carbohydrate. bank. Where the rest of us, who aren't as strong mitochondria, aren't as strong metabolically, we're going to run through our carbohydrates much quicker because they're a larger contribution. Okay? Mm. So, what pros can do, and let's be honest, pros are different. Otherwise, <laughs> I'd be a pro if I was the same as them, you know? Pros are different. You certainly um, know enough, right? I know enough, yeah. <laughs> and it, 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 genetics get in my way. <laughs> um You know, they're different. We can't, you know, we can look at them as the gold standard, but we can't do everything they do because it might not work for us. Now, to get on to Andy's point, being appropriately fed doesn't mean being overfed. We can run a deficit, that's not a big deal. We can maybe run a little bit more of a deficit if tomorrow's workout isn't important, right? We're going to eventually eat those calories, refill those glycogen stores. But if we run a huge deficit today because we're doing this depleted workout and tomorrow we have a race or even a few days from now we have a race, because our glycogen gas tank is low, our performance isn't going to be very good. And we do not replace this stuff overnight. We're looking 48 hours maybe to get back to full glycogen stores. And so we need to keep all of that stuff in mind. It's back to the appropriateness of this. Everything is a tool. Intervals are a tool. Uh, Depleted workouts are a tool. We have to use those tools appropriately. We can't fix every home project with a hammer. Okay, we need wrenches, and we need to use wrenches appropriately, not hammer on things with them.
1: I was just asked to be a uh, a keynote uh, speaker uh, this summer day training conference, and my as the keynote, you kind of get to get to do interesting things. And they asked me if I would kind of recount my vision of technology that's changed over my forty-year career. And in, in in pursuing that information, I've had I've had it's really been a lot of fun to think about the early days of bike racing, and all of the training was based on the experience we had from track and field or some European model, which was really not founded in science. So to see <laughs> yeah. the swing we've made in four decades to technically driven, science-driven training. And that almost everybody has access to power meters and heart rate monitors and, and adequate coaching. It's really an interesting thing that everybody can within can afford this technology that, that Rob's talking about. Everybody, even the guy in the small town in Iowa, has access to buy a power meter and a heart rate monitor, those kinds of things. So, how do you use them? How do you learn how to use them? Most people have power meters on their bikes, and it's nothing more than a speedometer, right? It's it's entertainment it's a for heavy their Yeah, <laughs> it, it's, it's 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 entertainment for them. It's something to stimulate them while they're out there. But I think a power meter and a coach, if both used appropriately, give us permission to go slow when we're supposed to go slow and tell us when we're going hard, when we're supposed to be going hard, and also tell us... <laughs> when we think we're going hard and we're not. Yeah. Right? When we're in that yeah. that low calorie state or fatigue state where today's supposed to be a X workout and I can only do minus X. Mm-hmm. So coaches and technology both can give us permission to do it right. Yeah. But if you if but you have to listen to your coach. Yeah.
2: So this brings us full circle to actually a question that I really wanted to ask both of you and and, and I think that's the hopefully the key message for today is Going back to that Iowa rider, and we do love you, everybody in Iowa. <laughs> um, the bus rumbled over, everybody. <laughs> but you get a call from this rider, and they're, they're a typical rider training 8 to 10 hours a week, and they call you up and say, okay, I've, I've been told all these new techniques, so what I'm doing is sprint intervals for 30 minutes twice a day, and I never touch carbohydrates. What are you going to tell this writer? What, like, When you, you say there's a foundation that really hasn't changed, what are the things both of you are going to tell the riders as these are the things you need to be doing? These are the things to train right. This is where you need to start. Don't ever change this. And then you can start adding and playing with the rest.
0: You know, I think before I say anything to anyone, we need to go on a, a fact-finding sort of mission. And I need to learn about this person as an individual, and I need to learn about their goals. Because ultimately, it's the rider and what they're trying to achieve that's the most important part of this. And as a coach or a consultant, my job is to help get them to their goal as best I can. But if we talk about sort of pillars of training, everybody needs to work hard at some point in time. Okay, That is a a foundation sort of moment. But at the same time, the majority of the work that you're doing ought to be, quote unquote, easy, as a lot of people would like to say. Appropriate is what I would like to say. Um, now, what do you mean by easy? Yeah, exactly. What I mean by that is is that work with the aerobic system is actually handling the effort without being overwhelmed, without calling on the anaerobic system or fast twitch fibers to achieve it. That's where we tend to see the best aerobic improvement in people. And, uh, let's face it, cycling is an aerobic sport first and foremost, that is going to be the limiting factor. Now, how do you determine that is a big question, right? In the lab, it's easy. I can, I can collect some data and through appropriate interpretation of that, I can tell you, okay. And uh, it's much more complex than I can say in the next five seconds on this tape recorder. But if, um, if we don't have those, well, then we need to collect a lot of power data, Or we need to do some field tests or that person needs to be very astute at listening to their body and what that means. And so we don't need one particular method to go about it. But this is where a knowledgeable coach or an athlete who wants to be a student of the sport and a student of physiology can help determine for themselves. But we need to determine what that steady state sort of area is. We can be, you know, just utilizing formulas based off FTP if you have an appropriate FTP number. But the question is, is it appropriate or not? And, you know, doing a a one-off best sort of effort that you can never touch again on a power meter that wasn't calibrated appropriately, it doesn't give us good information. So that's where working with somebody who is knowledgeable is able to determine what's appropriate and what isn't. I know in some regard, I'm talking in relatively vague terms, but I also have a difficult time without an individual telling them exactly what they need to do sitting in front of me. And maybe that's the lesson is that there are a few things
3: out there that are just going to work for everybody. Yeah. And you so, know, you know, taking your training out of a book or trying to take just one one example and apply it to yourself is maybe not the best idea.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the pillar is the majority of your training, at least 50% ought to be in that appropriate aerobic area. I can definitely say that to everybody. But I can't necessarily tell Andy or Trevor or you, Kaylee, exactly what your heart rate or your power should be just by looking at you. It's just too difficult to know.
1: You've right? tested me enough times. You probably could tell me. <laughs> <enough> <laughs> <to> me. <laughs> you
2: probably could. could. have <laughs> so you, also, I, also <clears throat> tested me, but you usually I just have. shook your head and walked
1: away, <laughs> so you still haven't <laughs> <only laughs> given <laughs> me an
2: answer.
1: <laughs> he says to me, you're really good for an old guy.
0: But says, <laughs> it's, it's, it's all me. relative. <laughs> <laughs> but
1: but uh, hist- uh, going back to my history historical um view of things again we always talked about the athletic pyramid right so you've got this you've got this pyramid and pyramids are very stable because of the base and the base and and the athletic pyramid is endurance right aerobic endurance and you've got power and strength or power and speed whatever whatever the other sides of that pyramid you want to be but the pyramid that's upside down has too much quality and a training out of endurance is going to topple so that's you, you, you kind of get that visual, especially for that young athlete.
2: So, you're talking about these riders that are training an hour a day but bleeding and from the eye sockets every, every time. day.
1: The lunch ride is the lunch race, yeah. Monday through Friday, and then they go out and get their ass kicked on Saturday, yeah. duh, right? <laughs> but they can't figure it out. So, the really good athlete, the coachable athlete, rides alone a lot because. They've got a script that they're going to follow that day, yep. and that's not social. And, and their teammate may be in a slightly different program. So at my age, there's a bunch of old guys that ride, and we all ride, and we all try to hurt each other, right? So we, I can tell you that Saturday and Sunday are going to be hard. i got to figure out my Monday through Friday so that I get my endurance in during those, during those days. So that lunch racer uh, needs to be careful,
0: And and I know that 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 base pyramid, like Angie just described it, it's not the new sexy thing. So this gets back to our original question, is
3: is (laughs) what, like, you know, I I speak to and and sort of live in, in in this pro cycling world that has a lot of discussion of things like reverse periodization, which I don't personally totally understand, and... We hear a lot of things out of like Team Sky saying, "Oh, we're 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 doing this new thing that's going to totally revolutionize training." Yep. Uh, Karison said that recently. There are definitely, if if you're sort of the lay person, you hear all these things like you could you could get the impression that training is about to change very dramatically, and, and we just haven't heard about it yet.
0: That doesn't sound like something you agree with. <laughs> I'll 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 guarantee that it's not. Yeah, for most people. The tried and true stuff, if done appropriately, not just thinking you're doing it appropriately, but truly doing it appropriately, are going to get you 85% of your maximal adaptation with relatively little work or thought. And you know what? If we do include methods like, say, reverse periodization or minimal gain sort of things that Sky is going after, sure, they very well could be eking out a couple extra percent. They have entire teams of scientists working on this. They're millions of dollars in budget. You and I don't have that for us as individuals. (laughs) It's important for them, right? They're professional athletes. They're looking to do well for their sponsors. They're looking to, you know, create this business sort of situation. But there's probably danger in taking what you think they're doing and trying to apply it to yourself. Absolutely.
1: Yes. I, I think changes in technique work because you've been following a certain program for x number of years you've developed those energy systems by that technique and then you change coaches or you buy a new book and you and you change them you may un you may tap into an energy source that you didn't you weren't training before so there there is there is purpose in training excuse me changing training purely for the sake of changing it in all honesty, right? Not so to
3: mention the mental aspect. What's right? new
1: today What's yeah. new today was old yesterday, right? I mean, so I think there's a real reason. I see young athletes that had the same coach. Sorry, Trev. Hope these, I hope your, your coaching stable doesn't leave you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they should. Uh,
1: no, I, 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 I see young athletes who been, had on. the same coach, you know, for X number of years. And the coach is hanging on, hanging on, hanging on. When in reality, they should encourage them to try somebody else and something new purely because they they've they've developed them as far as they could with their techniques so there's a purpose in changing doesn't mean Mm -hmm. so new is a relative term right Mm -hmm. new can just
0: be different right and at the same time you know that coach in himself should not be applying the same technique to all of his athletes at all the times of the year but you know better (laughs) exactly exactly you know and and that's You know, I said that a pillar is that at least 50% of your time should be in that appropriate aerobic zone. But with, you know, athletes that I'm working with, sometimes it is only 50% and sometimes it's 85% of what they do based on what I'm trying to achieve with them. In January and July are two very different months when it comes to racing and we need to be working in different ways to get there. And so, yeah, change is very important. If we do the exact same technique every day for the rest of our life, then we're going to hit a plateau, let's be honest. And Mm -hmm. then we will change and we'll we'll do something different, say CrossFit, Mm -hmm. you know, and and we'll unlock this new sort of potential within us because we started including more high intensity intervals than we had ever done before. And so we removed a different limiting factor, you know, and but... That's not to say that CrossFit is the best training method. It's just to say for that person who was missing that aspect, they found their key, at least for that time being. Anybody that walks out the door after a consultation with me, I tell them within three to six months, my recommendations for you are going to be different than they are today because I hope that you are a different athlete based on the training that you did.
1: I go to at least three different Pro Tour camps a winter or three different teams a winter in multiple camps. And I've seen over my 40 years that at times teams all have individual coaches. And that has, I've seen that to be successful. I've also seen teams not allow any individual coaches, and everyone is coached by two or three people within the, the team's staff. I've seen that be successful. I've also seen it all be a nightmare across the board. So, um, I think what Rob said is really crucial, that, that not one formula fits fits all athletes. And, it, and
0: that formula should change, no doubt. And it changes based on what you're trying to achieve as an athlete. Are you wanting to be a time trial specific person? I'd train you differently. Are you trying to be a climber? Are you trying to be a sprinter? Or are you, say, a runner or a triathlete? You know, all of those um, events have different needs uh, for good performance. <laughs> And as we were kind of getting to before, different body types or physiology types, they're just going to be successful in different areas. It doesn't mean that you can't be successful.
2: So to flip that around, what I'm hearing from you is definitely, even within an athlete, what was right for that athlete in 2013 might not be right now, that you have to be changing what you're doing. So so to flip that around as coaches and doctors working with the athletes... Has there been anything recently where you just went, wow, I need to change what I'm
0: doing? For me personally? As a physiologist, as a coach? You know, it's, it, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm a funny individual where um, I was a great hurdler and I achieved a lot of success. I've competed on the national stage in that event. And I've moved over to cycling. You can't hurdle when you're 32, 33, 34. I'm 34 now, I think. You know, and so cycling for me has always been experimentation. That's what I like about it. I love cyclocross in a sense because I love experimenting with different lines through this corner, with different tire pressures. That's the science side of me. And how and low the hurdles are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am great at barriers. Um, you know, but... I almost every year for myself, change my training just to see what happens. Because you know what? I'm never going to be a great cyclist. I'm always going to be a mid-pack Colorado Cat 3 in cyclocross. Let's be honest here. But I want to know, well, what if I do um, maybe block periodization where I'm doing, you know, a week of really hard workouts followed by three weeks of not as many intense intervals, just to see how it works for me. You know, and then, um, you know, kind of recently I've been into this sort of um, rides with a lot longer blocks or, a lot, or blocks with a lot longer rides in them. You know, maybe two really long rides per week and then the fillers are just kind of an hour or so just to try different sort of things. I've found stuff that works for me and stuff that doesn't you know, um, with this longer block, Hey, I've certainly gotten better at longer mountain bike rides. Like go figure. (laughs) We kind of saw that happening, you know? And, and so the experimentation I think is fun for the sake of experimentation, but I'm okay. Personally, if a season doesn't go quite as well, because my training was bad because I got to learn that that was bad training, but for some other people where performance is the most important thing, it's a little harder to experiment like that because you run the risk of doing something in a inappropriate for you mm-hmm.
1: but Rob is there anything new in, in your literature on, on how long it takes to peak and how long a peak can last if you really achieve your you know your current genetic that's yeah. another one that comes back to our team sky yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah making some
0: some hefty claims it's uh, I don't necessarily know if anything is new okay. so to say um, I will say that Peaks cannot, true, peaks cannot be held for very long, a couple weeks, maybe, and then we're definitely starting to decline and we need to start rebuilding back up. And things like that make planning of our racing season very important. You can't be good at the beginning, the middle, and the end of the season. If you're trying to do that, you're going to be mediocre at all three. And then especially if you're trying to ride road and cyclocross and do these multiple sort of sports, Right. But Andy, in all honesty, I can't think of new worthwhile research yeah. that's changed sort of any of the previous thinking on that.
1: So what's, what's Sky claiming about: uh...
0: Well, we just we, we've seen instances,
3: and it's not just Sky, but it seems like and this is mostly anecdotal, peaks are getting longer. I think the last Olympics was a perfect example of both Wiggins and Fru managing to extend this sort of pre Tour de France all the way through to an Olympic time trial.
1: Yeah, but they he, both they both disappeared for times. They did, right? but there was only
3: about there's what, a week or two in between I think about two weeks in between the two. We just heard Again, mostly anecdotally, like yeah. riders just, just coming out and saying, you know, oh, I'm going to be fast for this whole period. Mm-hmm. It seems like that is a trend lately. And, and again, you know, there's no, there's, very little, there's, there's no real science to back that up other than just what riders are telling us. But it does seem like they, they believe they've figured out a system where they can
0: hold a peak a little bit longer. I, I think that the question is really what do we consider a peak? What performance improvement above baseline are we calling within that? And, you know, for me, I'm thinking the top, top, top of the curve. How long are we really holding that? Mm-hmm. But if we extend that and and say include, um, you know, just be a little bit less of a closed box maybe with our performance, then we could call a peak longer because it's all on a curve, right? Right. We have an upslope and we have a peak and we have a downslope. How much (laughs) of that do we want to include? Right. You know, and oftentimes people can still be on the upslope and frankly, they're just better than you are and so they win. They're not at their peak yet. Or even on the downslope. I mean, if we're talking talking Wiggins,
2: maybe he wins Olympic
3: gold even though he's on his way back down. That that,
2: that was... The question, were they on a peak or were they just at 95% and they're percent percent beat everybody else? Exactly. And that's what we see in local
0: racers where, you know, th- there will be a, um, maybe a, a racer that I work with. So I know what his training is and I'll be talking with another racer who doesn't know that person's training, but they say such and such must be peaking from the beginning of the year because he's always beating me in August. Well, that's not necessarily <laughs> right. true. He just might be better than you are, <laughs> you, you know, because I know for a fact that he is not peaking in August. Right. So
2: this is actually an approach I take with all my athletes. When, when you talk about commonalities, you coach every athlete differently, but there are some commonalities. And what I tell every one of my athletes is if you're only strong when you're on a peak, you're going to have two good races all year. Right. So we really, what I really try to do with them is I want to get your base level up. So you can go into a race at 80% and you're not going to win it, but you can be finishing with the lead groups and you can be competitive. Yep. Then you can be competitive in a lot of races mm-hmm. through the years. And when you have those couple peaks, you're untouchable. Mm-hmm. And that should really be the goal of your training. Right.
1: Certainly. Well, so so one, yeah. one last thing, I think from the medical practitioner side of things, talking about peaks, you know, I think it's a, it's a knife edge between being healthy and not healthy. Yep. So we talk about, you know, Athletes are healthier. Well, if you stay just below your peak, your your immune system is strong. When you hit your peak or you go over the top, and you're suddenly fighting illness all the time, so I'm trying to give our listeners a, a clue to when the maybe they've gone over the top, other than just performance. So your weekly time trial time starts to suffer. Okay, you're probably not recovered. You're probably you know on on the downside. You better think about your training. Most most masters tend to train harder when their performance falls off, and that's a right. Um, and if, and if that's your if that's what you do, you're gonna get sick. So illness is the bottom of the over over trained over raced,
0: yeah.
1: trough right. It's the yeah. bottom of you've gone over the top of the peak and you've fallen in. So I just wanted to give our listeners that that what. what what you know, was going over the top start, look like, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's right. my performance starts to go down. My heart rate starts to go up. I start to get sick. You, you, if you've gotten sick, you've gone too far,
0: right? Yeah. And you know we're looking at peak. You know, try to draw this as a visual representation, right? Peak is sort of a curve, and the very mm. top apex of that curve is a hundred percent. Well, if we back up a little bit to ninety five, or we move forward to a hundred and five percent, it's the same performance right right so we're a little bit safer being at 95% than we are pushing over to 105% cuz we ain't getting any better Sorry. but we're that much closer to overtraining to getting sick and each person has their own sort of overtraining, you know, sort of pattern that they fall into. You need to be very cognizant of that to make sure you don't end up at that point. Right.
3: Okay. Success is addictive,
1: though, and it leads to overtraining. <laughs>
2: Physiologically, how are pros different from your average amateur besides genetics? Well,
0: that's what makes them different. <laughs> yeah. Fair yeah. enough. Genetics. Genetics. In some regard, we could, we could sit here with a laundry list of an hour's worth of differences, right? What I'll say is, for the most part, pros just have a higher amplitude of the things that we want to see in regular cyclists. They'll have a little bit more, at least in pro cyclists, right? We're talking about endurance athletes here. They'll have maybe a slightly higher percent of slow twitch fibers, And they're going to have a higher percent or a higher density of mitochondria and a better blood supply. All of these things that help them do work aerobically. Pros are probably going to be better responders to exercise, right? Where they can almost do any exercise and man, they get leaps and bounds better because their body is just set up to create those proteins or their DNA encodes a little bit better. And so uh, there are certainly measurable differences where um, oftentimes People, you know, say take like Evie Stevens, for example, she was a tennis player, right? Mostly an anaerobic sort of sport. She got into cycling later in life and she very quickly made it to the top of the sport, right? She had this natural innate ability to get there and she reached her potential through good training, through hard work and everything else. You can certainly find people who are low level, maybe they're continental pros because they don't have Quite as good genetics, but man, they work their butt off and they're really getting all the potential they have. You can find other continental pros that should be international pros, but maybe they don't have the work ethic. Maybe they haven't done the right workouts for them. Or you have the combination where people really get up high. You know, and that's, we'll see high VO2 maxes and great economy. You need both to be a pro. Most people like myself, I have a great VO2 max, or it's mid-70s at the very least, but my economy's not very good. So I'm just using more oxygen, you know, I'm spinning my legs, so to say, and I'm not quite getting all the work out that a pro would be getting. But I can compete, I can be going right for the finish line, head-to-head with a guy with a low VO2 max, but really good economy. That makes us both average.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh. So Dr. Kreb, well, I mean, you... You've discovered a lot of, of top pros. Was there anything that you just said that that you saw early on that you said that this distinguishes them? Like I can tell this person's going somewhere.
1: I don't know that I can take credit for discovering them, but um, I had the pleasure of coaching a lot of young young people that have survived in the sport for several decades for sure. What's really interesting about cycling is that we don't all look alike. If you stood Peter Sagan next to some typical little climber in last year's Indiana Tour of California. Yeah. Right. Um, and Dombrowski. <laughs> yep. So you got Dombrowski standing next to Peter Sagan, but yet who won the Tour of California last year? Peter Sagan, right? So um, there's a guy who is tough as nails and has an incredible anaerobic system. He was a good sprinter, good mountain bike racer, who has turned into a multi-day racer, who's turned into a guy who can get over the climb. So he has that best of both worlds with the psychology that goes with it. So what I really like about cycling is that we don't all have to look alike, we really don't. And then there's, there's Cavendish, who's this little tyke of a guy, sprinting against Marcel Kettle, who's a, who's a giant of a guy. So it was Cav's aerodynamics, he was like a bullet, where he could compete with guys with, with watt outputs 30% higher than his. So that's what I really like about cycling is that you can uh, use this mechanical tool as a great equalizer.
3: Yeah.
1: I like cycling because it lets a lot of different people have a ticket uh, to the dance.
0: I think that that's why I was drawn to cycling as well. I mean, I was a hurdler growing up for years And there's a large technical component to that race. The the winner of that race isn't necessarily the fastest runner. It's technique plus uh, physiology, so to say, plus grittiness and determination. You know, and as Andy was saying, I mean, cycling is such a multifaceted, complex situation that it's very difficult to predict. Now, if we look at, say, a one-day classic, we know the kind of rider that's going to be good there. And if we're looking at stages in the tour, we know who's going to be good there. But because we're looking at so many varied events, uh, everybody, well, I shouldn't say everybody, but multiple people get to be very successful uh, based on that. Yeah.
2: Thank you. So can we have a concluding question? Yeah. 30 <laughs> seconds each. <laughs> You have the entire Iowa listener base.
1: We have an and your exposure right now.
2: So so here's the question. For all of our listeners, if there is one piece of advice you could give everybody, what would it be?
1: Money no option. No obstacle? So
2: whatever yeah, really what you idea. want everybody in Iowa to know, here's your chance. <laughs>
1: Get fit on your bicycle. Make sure that it is comfortable. Numbness and pain are unnecessary in today's world. Um, Get comfortable on your bike. Have the right equipment. uh, And then build your base. Train appropriately. So if money is not an obstacle, get a really good fit and either get a good coach or buy a library. Not just one book, but several books that you can read from and, and pull the pearls out of which work for you. So good fit, good advice, listen to it.
0: For, for me, the number one advice that I have is, is being honest um, because that's where everything is built off of. And when you're looking at your training, you need an honest assessment of who you are and the things that you can do. Yep. Because if you are inflating based on ego or anything else, and we all do it, let's be honest, or at least we all <laughs> want to do it, then you're not getting the appropriate training. And you need to be honest with your goals. What do you want to achieve and what can you achieve? That is going to help steer you in the appropriate direction. Find somebody that helps you move in that direction. And that was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback.
2: Email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. While you're there, also check out our sister podcast, the VeloNews Podcast, which covers news about the week in cycling. You can hear Kaylee share her thoughts on that one as well. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk's produced by Velo News, which is owned by Competitor Group. And thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. In this case, the opinions we got are probably pretty good ones. So for Kelly Fretz, I'd like to say thank you again to Dr. Andy Pruitt and to Rob Pickles. I'm Trevor Conner. Thanks for listening.